Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. you find that if you're using one of the Pew Bibles on page 556, Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 14. Beloved saints, this is God's word. Please give your attention to the reading of it. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This ends the reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer that the Lord might speak to us through it. Our gracious and our merciful God, we know that you are great and that you are greatly to be praised. We long to know you, to know your attributes, your character, and your works. And it's these that you have recorded for us in your word, that you have preserved through the ages, that each generation might come afresh and behold your grace, your power, and your love. As we come to your word, open our eyes and hearts to behold its treasures. Allow us to gaze upon your beauty and splendor. Humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom we meet in your word. Amen. You may be seated. One of the lessons that children need to learn is comparing two things, which is better, which is worse. And the point is to teach them how to relate two objects, two things. We start with easy questions, which is taller, which is shorter. The pastor is always shorter, I know. Which is hotter, which is colder, and so on. And eventually their judgment comes into play 
and we ask, which is better? The beach or a snowstorm? Ice cream or snails? And you always know the answer you're going to get. Because for a child, good is always defined by what is easy and fun and enjoyable. But as you get older, you learn that sometimes the better choice is not the easy or pleasant or fun choice. The better way is not always easy. The right decision is not always fun. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, and sorry, 13, when he's discussing love, he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Growing up means learning that the simple, the fun, and the easy ways are not always the better ways. And nowhere is that more clear, more true than when it comes to spiritual matters. And that's what our passage is about today. I really want to drive home this point as we look at this first part of chapter 7. It's this, you must be aware of and fight the temptation to self-deception through entertainment and distractions. We need to be aware that we are tempted to distract ourselves deceive ourselves through fun and entertainment and therefore avoid reality and important questions and decisions. That's what we want to look at. And as we become clear in the last few verses, our passage is about wisdom. We want to define wisdom. What is it? Wisdom is not knowledge. There are many people with near encyclopedic minds full of facts and knowledge who are fools. As my daughter loves to say, knowledge is recognizing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is understanding that it does not belong in a fruit salad. (laughs) Generally speaking, knowledge is about facts and wisdom is about making good judgments. Knowledge is about facts. Wisdom is about making good judgments. It's about how we use knowledge. It's about knowing which facts are important and which aren't. Wisdom is about discernment. And so wisdom helps us to determine not just what is good, but what is better between two options. And in better in what way? In other words, wisdom learns to discern which goals are more ultimate, more important and which are not. Fun with friends is good, but is it more important than passing an exam and graduating? Is buying a new outfit more important than paying the electrical bill? And so on. And that's what we struggle with as children. As children, we can only see what is right in front of us. Given the choice between one lollipop today and two tomorrow, a child will almost always pick the one today. And as adults, we say, no, well, two is better. If I'm a little bit patient, that'll be better. It would be wiser to wait until tomorrow. But biblical wisdom pushes us farther. Biblical wisdom is the ability to live according to God's word, regardless of what our circumstances look like or tell us. 
Biblical wisdom comes from believing that God knows better than we do. And it leads us to trust that His ways are always, 100% of the time, without fail, better than our ways. It calls us to trust in Him, even when we don't understand how things are going to turn out. And in our passage, we have some of wisdom's judgments that, if we're honest, surprise us. The first isn't shocking in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. We understand that. Not, now, some might disagree. Some might prefer deceitful gain to honest labor. But most of us get this, that it's better to have integrity than to get rich through dishonesty. That our reputations, our character, our names are more important than our bank accounts. It's the second statement that shocks us. The second half of verse 1, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Birth is the beginning of a long, hard journey. Death is the end of that journey. For those who are at peace with God... It is a passing from toil into glory, as we saw with our sister Sylvia yesterday. It's better. But in order to understand that, you must be able to see beyond this life and this world. And to help us understand this, or sorry, understanding that helps us to see what he says in verse 2. It is better to attend a funeral than a feast. God's providence is always a curious thing. That I would be preaching this passage with a funeral yesterday and one this coming Saturday. We didn't plan that. God did. Now we need to be careful. It's not saying that feasts are bad. God instituted feasts. He commanded feasts. Jesus attended feasts. It's not saying that you should only attend funerals and that parties are bad. It's making a judgment call. Feasts are good. Funerals are better. And why? Because we're all headed to death. And then comes judgment. And funerals force us to consider our own mortality and whether we're prepared to face death. Feasts are fun. But no one goes to them expecting to have their life choices questioned. They don't go to parties and question whether or not they're prepared to face death. Feasts don't prepare us for eternity. Funerals do. And all of these judgments come together in verse 8, which says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Wisdom always keeps the big picture in mind. With where things are headed. Wisdom doesn't get sidetracked 
with what is shiny and immediate. It knows what is fun today might be destructive in the long run. And so wisdom doesn't think like a child. Wisdom requires patience. Patience is better than the need to always have pleasure. And that need to always have pleasure comes from pride, the idea that your comfort and your pleasure are what is most important. Pride loves to be at parties and it hates going to funerals because they're uncomfortable. Wisdom sees through the mask that that pride wears and it calls us to patience. If wisdom's character is to choose what is more ultimate, that which has more lasting benefits, wisdom's reasons are given in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom protects the lives of those who possess it. Again, that's applicable in a very general way. The wise person preserves his life by putting on a seatbelt when he gets in a car. The wiser person drives safely so that he might never need his seatbelt in the first place. But the Bible wants us to see beyond that. Because the Bible's goal is not to avoid death. No one can do that. The goal of the Bible is life after death. And for that to happen, you have to believe that this life is not all there is. That really death is just the beginning. The Bible doesn't just keep the long term in mind. The Bible is concerned with forever, with with eternity. It's only when you see God's wisdom, when you learn to understand His wisdom, that you can survive eternity. Because foolish pride is consumed with today, with fun, with entertainment, with pleasure. Godly wisdom is consumed by what lasts, what is eternal, what matters when you die, and a million years after that. And so when God came into this world as a man, when he was driven by wisdom. Jesus was the embodiment of wisdom. This afternoon, and you're, you're reading, read Proverbs 8, how wisdom speaks in personified fashion, and you'll see that it's, it's Jesus. Nothing he did was driven by the short term, by pride. At every point, he took eternity into account. And that meant he had a hard road to walk. But the purpose of a road is to lead somewhere. The purpose of a road is not how smooth it is, but where it leads. And that's how it's ultimately judged. You can have the most pleasant road that goes in circles and gets you nowhere. Or you can have a rough road that gets you where you need to be. The road Jesus had to walk was anything but smooth. It started with a hard birth. In a moment, he went from the glories of heaven to the humiliating context of a stable behind an inn. He went from being entirely self-sufficient to being a needy infant. He became dependent upon the very people he had created. As he grew, he was hated by his siblings, misunderstood by the educated, condemned by the religious, 
and ultimately silenced by the civil magistrate. His life was not filled with pleasure, but with pain. His life resembled a funeral more than it did a feast. And at the end of the road lay a cross where he would be put to death. And he refused to be seduced by the temporary and fleeting pleasures of this world. He was patient, resolute, and determined. He chose the harder road, the better road, the wiser road. And what made that road better? If it was harder, what made it better? What made it the wise choice? It was what he would accomplish through this road and this road alone. Because Jesus came with eternity in view, not his, but yours. He knew that it is appointed once for a man to die and then comes judgment. He appointed that. He knew it well. And he knew that all have sinned including you and including me. And he knows that all sin deserves his wrath and his judgment, both in this life and that life which is to come. And he knew that there was one way and only one way to spare us from judgment, wrath, and curse, and that was to endure it in our place. And so that means he came to suffer. He came to die. He came to endure his own infinite wrath. There was no harder road than the one he walked. There was no greater pain. But there was no other road that could lead to where he wanted to go, what he wanted to accomplish. There was no other way to save you from all that you deserve. And so he was willing to walk the harder road. And as he died on the cross, he made your salvation possible. It was his death, not his birth, that made it possible. His, death, his, his birth was important. It was necessary. But the end was more important than the beginning, Ecclesiastes 7, 8. The day of his death was better than the day of his birth. Because it was his death, in his death, that he accomplished all that he came to do. It was there that he earned the ultimate reward. But it was not a reward he wanted to keep to himself. It was something he earned in order to share. He came not for his own sake, but for ours. And that means your road to heaven can only come through him. The Bible goes so far as to say Jesus is the way. Not he knows the way, teaches the way. He is the way. And that means that the way to heaven is to abandon everything else in order to have him. Jesus must be more important to you than any earthly pleasure. He must be the sole object of your faith. You must trust in him alone for your salvation. Any other road is foolishness and ends only in hell. But for those who forsake what is temporary in order to gain that which is eternal, 
those who contemplate death rather than fill their lives with feasts and parties, those who do what is hard rather than what is pleasant, these have a promise from God. He promises that he will not lose one, but will raise you up on the last day. He promises that you will not be disappointed. He promises that you will experience the eternal weight of glory. He promises that heaven awaits. The question is, do you prize the eternal over the temporary? Do you have the patience to seek what is right over what is easy? Are you willing to walk the harder road if it is the better road? Are you wise or are you foolish? We live in an age that dreads hardship. We're enslaved to entertainment. Simply put, we live in an age of foolishness. Fortunately, our passage has some much-needed counsel, wisdom for an age of foolishness. Verse 5 says, It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. Do you believe that? Would you rather hear wise correction than foolish praise? Do you surround yourself with people who can speak into your life and call you to a better path? And when they offer correction, do you receive it or are you defensive? I think we all know what we should be, what we should do. We all want to believe that we are quick to hear wisdom, that we don't surround ourselves with foolishness. But the temptation is so easy. And it's not always obvious. Look at verse 4 and how it says we do this. It's, it's by going to the house of mirth. The way we avoid correction is by always being in a place where things are fun and light and no one's going to correct anybody. No one sits down at a party and says, can we talk about your life choices? But if you only go to to fun situations, are you doing anything but ultimately inviting a false view of reality? What is that but willingly promoting self-deception? We like people telling us everything is okay and that things don't need to change, even when we know it's not true. But look at verses 6 and 7. He says, Praise is like starting a fire with dry thorns. They they blaze up quickly in a burst of heat, and then they're gone in an instant. There's no substance. A good fire, one that provides sustaining heat, has to have substance for a slow burn. In our lives, that means wisdom and correction. Folly will eventually lead, it says, to madness or corruption. It feels good, but it can't sustain you. Wisdom prefers the rebuke of the wise to the praise of fools. 
And that leads to the second admonition in verse 8. Be patient. Good things take time. It's pride and impatience that wants everything right now. It's pride that struggles to wait for others to do things right. Pride believes, I deserve for everything to be done, how I want it, when I want it, and quickly. But wisdom knows that anything that is good is worth waiting for. It's better to wait for the right thing than to quickly gain the wrong thing. A wise heart is a patient heart. And that means being slow to get angry. It's pride that leads to anger with others. Can't tell you how many times I've been reminded that the Bible says there's a righteous anger and yet still am looking for a good example of it. We get angry with others because they don't do what we want, when we want, and how we want. We struggle to show them the very patience God has shown us. And we think that our anger will somehow make things better. But it doesn't. It gets lodged in our hearts. It causes only pain. It keeps us from seeing clearly. And it keeps us from loving others. It's not of God. And all of this leads to the counsel with which our passage closes. Consider the work of God. This is, the, this is our problem, isn't it? We look at life and we try to evaluate it without God. We, we see some trial coming and we think our job is to avoid it. The path gets windy and we think it's our job to make that path straight. But if God has made the path crooked, what makes us think we can straighten it out? Are you more powerful than God? Can you subvert his plans? Should that even be your goal? Or should you desire to learn how to accept his direction? And that means being joyful in the day of prosperity, enjoy the good times he gives, rest and be grateful, and seek to learn through the trials and the adversity and the hard times. If you believe that both of these are from God, you will believe that trials are there for your good. That God has something to teach you. And learning it would be better than not learning it. If you believe that God brings hard times into your life for your benefit, you will learn to endure them with patience. They will not be pleasant, but the easy road is seldom the right road. One of the ways that we can do this is by not avoiding the subject of death. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. We live in an age that is sterilized from death. The mortality rate has dropped. The way we deal with it has changed. 
just a few generations ago, it was typical to have three generations living in a home. When, when grandma and grandpa got too old, they would come and they'd live and they'd die in the home. Everyone would see it, remember it. Then everyone would go to the funeral. And we've so insulated ourselves from death, we pretend it doesn't happen, and then we find ourselves completely unprepared for it. Parents, take your children to funerals. Don't get a babysitter. Take them. Don't isolate them from death. Talk about it. Visit those who are dying or those who have lost someone. Let them weep. Weep with them. Because in doing so, we will learn to lay it up in our hearts. Perhaps that's why each week our Lord calls us not only to proclaim his death in the sermon, but also visibly in the Lord's Supper. In a sense, every worship service is a funeral. If I could be so blunt with an open casket up front. Our God knows how easily it, how easy it would be for us to insulate ourselves from any talk of death. But the Lord's Supper every week is a visible portrayal of the death of our Lord and our Savior on the cross. But here's the thing. It's also a feast. And if our passage says a feast is good and keeping death before our eyes is better, how much better is a feast that keeps death before our eyes? The Lord's Supper helps us to see that both feasts and adversity are from the Lord. They help us to see beyond death and to know that what is painful may lead to something wonderful. The Lord's Supper is the voice of wisdom in visible form calling us to hear and to heed all that Ecclesiastes 7 has proclaimed. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Please pray with me. Father, you know us. You know that we don't like to keep death before our eyes. We would rather distract ourselves and deceive ourselves with parties, with entertainment, with adventure. We want to convince ourselves that there are no big questions, there there are no big answers, but such is foolishness. Let us be wise. Teach us not to run from the house of mourning, but to accept that prosperity and adversity are both from your hand, and that we cannot make straight what you have made crooked. That our job is not to change your plans, but to accept and learn from them. May may, May we be wise and do just this, we pray. Through Christ our Savior. Amen.